Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi, Charlene. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on it. So Chris Safarova, our CEO and founder, had many amazing things to say about you. And after reading your profile, I was also very impressed. Now, there's many ways we could start the show because you have an amazing background in the tech field and understanding where the future of business and technology are going to merge and so on. But I think a good place to start is, given everything you know, when you meet executives, what is the most important thing you want them to understand about where the world is going? I think the most important thing they need to understand is that disruption is a way of life. It isn't something that just happens every couple of years. It's not about a new technology that comes along. It is all around us, and we just may not be aware of it. And so the more that we can look for, seek out disruption, rather than trying to avoid it, the better we are going to be at being able to deal with it and not just survive it, but to thrive with it. Oh, I like that. There's many things to unpack there. Let's start with the one that I think would be most helpful to listeners. There are many different definitions of disruption. What do you think is the best definition that business executives should keep in mind as they manage it, their businesses? Well, I don't think of it as a technology again. I, I do think of it as this feeling that you get that things are not right with the world. There's chaos, confusion, and the reason why we feel disrupted is because the way that we understand the world, and especially the relationships we have in that world, are being reformulated into something new. And in that time period, in this place of flux, we are disrupted, we feel discombobulated because we don't know where we stand. We don't know how the world is gonna be ordered. and you can take one or two tracks. You can wait for it to sort itself out and just hold on for your life. Or you can be part of that process of sorting it out, of putting it back together again into a semblance of the new. And so the, the disruptors, who, the people who thrive with disruption are the people who actively engage with the disruption, are understanding and accept the fact that the world has been disrupted and look forward to this new happening that's going to come out of all that work. I must say, I've never heard that definition of disruption and I like it. So what you're saying is the disruption is that feeling when you things just don't seem right. You feel you're losing customers. You feel they don't want what you're offering, but it's not necessarily the technology or the product that's come along to knock you off. It's what's happening and how you're going to respond to it. Is that a good way of reframing it? And oftentimes people say, you know, what is the disruption I need to create to drive growth? And I say back to them, no, you've got it backwards. It's actually growth that creates disruption. We keep looking for some sort of disruptive technology. We're yes. looking for the easy button uh, that we can hit that says disruption on it. And poof, we'll have the growth that happens, right? Yes. We can just find the right disruption. And when I talk to disruptive companies, they're not focused on disruption, they're focused on growth. They were 100% focused on exponential growth and they prepare themselves 
for us to grow at the exponential rates we want to, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be disruptive. The way that we think about the world is going to have to change. And we're going to prepare ourselves for this long, hard journey ahead. And because they're prepared, they're ready for it. They're ready for the fight. It's people who think it's going to be a nice, smooth, easy process because they hit the disruption easy button that are going to be left behind because when they come up to that wall where growth has to happen, you have to take that last crucial giant step. They realize, oh, this is going to be really, really hard. I don't want to do that. That feels awful. It feels disruptive. We're not prepared. So they back away from that growth edge. That's the biggest reason why people don't move into and through disruption successfully because they're frankly not ready. Yes, there's a lot of interesting things you said. Yeah, I want to rephrase this so the audience gets what you're saying and we can help tease out each of the nuggets of information. So I had a conversation recently with the CEO of a major steel producer and they're not getting any growth, right? They need to grow, but they're not getting any growth. So what you're saying is that when you are pursuing growth that seems incredibly hard to achieve, you have to find new ways of doing things and as a result of doing those new things, when people look at what you've done, they call it disruption. Is that a good way of saying it? Right. And those new things are typically new customers. And the core of my research is that if you want to be disruptive, you have to go and identify who your future customers are going to be. And you may love your current customers, but they may not be your future customers. So you literally have to say, thank you so much. Love working with you, current customers but our future lies over here. This is exactly what Facebook did early on in its, its lifetime. They penetrated the entire market for college students. And then they said, okay, where else can we grow? Oh, let's get high school students. And they got them in another year. And they go like, where do we go next? And they did the last thing that the students wanted. They let the parents in. <laughs> because yes. if you ask any of them, <laughs> hey, how would you like it for your parents to be in? And they're like, no, no, keep them out. But that was the reason, that was a crucial, pivotal point of disruption for Facebook. They disrupted themselves, redefined themselves as more than a social network of students, but a social network for the world. Okay, this is a very good example. So, so I want the audience to get this, right? Because what you're saying is a very unique way, I think, of thinking about strategy. It seems here, and, you, and you've given good examples to prove this, that disruption is the lag indicator. After you've gotten that growth and you've found your future customers and people look at what you've achieved, they'll call it disruption. But to get that disruption, you have to pursue this incredible growth by targeting your future customers. Yep, exactly. And if you think about what strategy is, strategy says we're going to the future and this is the road we're going to take. Yes. That's all strategy is. How are you supposed to aim for the future if you don't know who your future customers are? I go to so many companies and I'm like, tell me who your future customers are. They're like, you don't know, there are current customers. We're just going to get more of them. I'm like, that doesn't cut it. You haven't done the hard work to say, where are those growth opportunities? And it's not to say you don't love your current customers, but they are so bright and shiny. They're blinding you to look and be able to see all of these new opportunities because there are these adjacent customers. They're customers that you don't serve very well. For the steel mill, it's people who are probably look very unprofitable to you because of the way that you are configured. But what would it take to go after these less desirable customers? Well, guess what? Guess who's actually going after them? All the other startups, all the other people hungry because they don't have your customers. 
So they admit it, you know, we can't go after the core customers that you have, you own them, you serve them really well. So we're going to bite at you from the edges and we're going to encircle you and not give you any other places to grow. And unless you push out to those edges, to the places where you are not the best player, where you're going to change your game, you're never going to be able to find those new markets and grow. I like the way you explain that. It ties very closely to what Clayton Christensen said about going after those markets that you don't think you can serve very well, that you may not be the best person, but you give a very good way of explaining why you should do that. Because if you own your customer base and you are the best at serving it, a startup is not going to try to take you on in your home turf. It's going to try to attack you where you are not very good. Right. I get asked this question all the time. Usually you think of disruptors as the startups, the people who yes. are getting funding. And you know, how can a big company be disruptive? And I'm like, look at this. You're a big company. You have customers. You have scale. You have people. You have talent. You have cash. You have every advantage in the world to be able to go after new customers. Except you have one big disadvantage. You have really profitable, attractive current customers. Just the opposite. They have none of those advantages, but they have one huge advantage. They have no customers. So they have to go after what they can get. And they will make sacrifices. They'll live with those customers day in, day out to get to know them, become their best friends, serve them to the best ability, and they will make it so that those customers are profitable. That's fascinating. So I want to ask you the question I think everyone's going to ask. Imagine you, you're a company, let's take a media company, for example, right? That does streaming of movies, for example, or, or any example you want. It's up to you, Charlene. But if you've got your existing customers, what is the thought process you need to go through to identify your future customers? That's a great example. And just look at Netflix. They keep reinventing themselves. Uh, they were shipping CD-ROMs in yes, the beginning. I remember and then they days. went streaming. And then they're now into content. And so they keep reinventing themselves every five to seven years. And they're masters at disrupting themselves and seeing where those future customers are. So I worked at newspapers for the longest time and they could see the future that their classifieds yes. business that drove the vast majority of the profits was going to go away. And they could see it coming like a huge train wreck and they weren't willing to make any changes around that. Or they did, but it was always about protecting the print franchise really understanding what business they were in. And Shipstead in, in Europe did a fantastic job of pivoting and truly investing in the classifieds business. And they're the number one classifieds now in the markets that they have chosen to play in. So let's come back to the Netflix example. And we'll come back to the one on classifieds later because they're good examples. So in the Netflix example, initially, it was those uh, CDs which they delivered over the mail and then they went to streaming and so on. And then you give the example of them going to content production. Is the point you're making here that initially they were targeting the US streaming market and when they went international, they went into content to feed international? Is that the point you're making? They saw their future customers international? No, it wasn't just the international market. Um, I, again, I think they could see that the new market was actually just streaming. Yes, okay, so streaming was the new customer, as you say. When they launched their streaming product, nobody was streaming. That's right, yeah. You know, everyone thought this was crazy. People didn't have broadband. And it's just like, why are they doing this with this crazy two-tier system that everybody hated? There was a huge uproar. They apologized for the uproar and kept the two-tier streaming versus CD-ROM business because they wanted to assign value to the streaming product, even though people didn't value it at the time. No, it makes sense. So in the example you're using here with Netflix, the new future customer at the time would have been streaming 
And who knows what Netflix today sees as its future customer. It could be something else, and they're now planning for that, right? Exactly. Guarantee you they're planning. Let's talk about the classifieds example. It's also a good one because everyone knows what classifieds would be. And this example, you said this company reinvested in classified and made it work. So what's the example there of the old customer and the new customer? Well, the old customer is print. Okay. Print newspapers, right? And the new customers are people who do online classifieds. And the problem with so many newspapers, I worked at Knight Ritter in the United States, no longer exists. It was bought up by McClatchy. And, and primarily because the, the shareholders couldn't see a future where it made sense, where they could maintain double digit margins. And the problem there, they vested heavily in digital, but it was always with the permission and with the buy-in yeah. of the print publishers. And what Shipset said was, hey, we want to preserve print, but the best way to survive this is we have to give the online classifieds the ability to eat our own lunch. Because if we put constraints on them to say it can do only so far as it doesn't hurt the newspaper's profits, we're never going to win. So they gave them permission to go fully after and do whatever they needed in each of the markets, knowing that if they made money, it would always come back to the print side of the business yes. That side of the business too, as well, but there was no way for the publishers to say no. I don't want that. That's that's going to hurt my P and L. They couldn't say no. And as an executive thinking about who their future customers, what are the questions they need to ask themselves? It, is this a viable market? And if it's and viable, being not by definition of your perspective, your assets at that point, is there a true need that this market represents? And then understanding what's the best way to serve that need. And you may not have those assets. You may not have those capabilities and the people and the talent, the technologies to be able to serve them. Then you have to see and make that strategic decision. Is this worth going after? Is it worth it for me to go and develop, take time and attention and dollars away from my current business and invest in this unknown future? Majority of businesses say no, no, that's uncertain. It's not guaranteed. I look at my current customers, that's too risky of a bet. The disruptive organizations say, yeah, I have done this. I know what's feasible or not. I know what my hit rates are. This is worth going after. You know, one of the great things about this um, example you gave is it hits at one of the central tensions in strategy today, whereby there is a very big camp of thinkers who look at the resources a company has and they say, what can we do with these resources? And then there's another camp that says, let's forget about the resources we have, but where is the world going? Where is the market going? Who would be our future customers? And what assets do we need to assemble to win in that market? And the challenge is that whenever people look at the resources they have, they call it a realistic strategy or a strategy that can be implemented. They use a euphemism for the fact that they're not taking risk and building for the future, right? So how do you think executives can avoid going for a strategy that simply leverages what they already have in their asset base? I think, again, it comes down to your confidence Yes. And being very specific levers in the business. And I'll give you an example. Adobe went from packaged software uh, that you yes. on CD-ROMs to the cloud. One of the most fantastic strategic moves in annals of history, I think, of, of business. Because there were no customers who wanted this to happen. I mean, the customers that they had, these designers and marketers, love the product. You go and test it with them. They go, I, we don't want this. Yes. I don't want to pay Adobe every month. Everything in their business was geared towards that. The marketing, the website, the sales, the way they did accounting yes. was geared towards that. 
And as a publicly traded company, they knew that they would lose billions of dollars for two years, quarter after quarter, lose money as they were doing this transition. And yet they did it because they, all the research looking at that future customer said, this is going to be fantastic. It's going to blow the doors off. We're going to have new people who will pay $10 a month to be able to use Photoshop. It's no longer the main of these designers. It's $800, $3,000. It's $10 a month. They made the decision. And the key thing was they had enough levers in their digital marketing at that point where they felt pretty comfortable. They knew that if they pushed the lever in this direction, they would generate so many sales in that direction. So that confidence, that ability gave them the confidence to say, yeah, we can do this. We can manage and hit our numbers going down. And that's what Wall Street wants. If you're going to lose money, tell me how much money you're going to lose and then hit that number. So literally a year after they announced this, they went to Wall Street, Q1 of 2013, mm -hmm. CEO and COO said, we have great news. Our strategy is working. We lost a ton of money. Isn't this great? And the stock price went up. And quarter after quarter, they kept losing money and their stock price kept skyrocketing. You don't see that, but you see it when somebody is so clear about what their strategy is because they have such a clear idea of who that future customer is. The executive team all could articulate this. Talking to the CFO, not somebody you would think knows a lot about customer, was impassioned and could explain to all the investors who this future customer is and who that, that, that customer represented for them in terms of the future opportunities. And Wall Street believed them because they walked into the room with tremendous clarity and, and also confidence that they could actually make this happen. And they delivered quarter after quarter. So this is a great example. Everyone knows Adobe. I mean, I've used their products. Great example. A lot of successes. Winding back, you, you may be privy to this or not. I'm not sure whether they're a client or not. And I don't know what you can divulge. But previously, their products targeted agencies and you know specialists who are willing to pay the high-end amounts for a high-end product. So what Adobe was saying is that we believe there's a future customer group we're not servicing that could exist if we created a product that was cheap enough for hobbyists to buy into. Is that the kind of thinking they were going with? That was one of the angles. They could also see that the world was becoming more mobile and more collaborative. Mm, yes. And it, it needed faster product development cycles, not the traditional 18 to 24 months. There were things that they wanted to be able to do with the product that would not be supported by the CD-ROM. So from a product integrity point of view, from a customer service, expanding the market perspective, making it more accessible to people of all different types at a lower upfront cost. And then also just the servicing of it. So much easier to service a SaaS-based product than something that sits on a CD-ROM on your computer. You can't see what's actually happening. So it gave them a lot more data, what parts of the product were actually being used so they could do better development in the future. So they, they created this flywheel of goodness between opening up new markets, understanding them for their use, and, and lowering the cost constantly to be able to make it even more accessible to more people who gave it more data. And it was just a fantastic flywheel. Being able to see the data in real time or relatively real time allows them to know where to make the investments, which means they make better and better products, you know, as you say, the flywheel. But there's another part here which you alluded to. It seems as if they looked at 
what was happening, where pricing was going, where the product needs were going, how the channels were developing, and they looked at which type of customer segment this would converge on. And that's how they picked their future customers. Is that a good way of thinking about their thought? There's a, a great theory out there called the adjacent user theory by Bengala Kaba, who's now at Forge. And he was at Instagram and Instacart. <laughs> so and they looked at the people who were on the periphery. They had signed up, but never really got to be using yes. the products that they had. And he said, these are the adjacent users. That Those are the first people to go after because they already bought into the value prop, but they're not using you. So why is that? Really go down deep. Understand what is it that this non-core user is doing or not doing? What's holding them back? Do the deep studies, really understand them, have empathy for their situation. Versus the typical way is, well, they're not a good fit for yes. us. They're not our core user. We're going to dismiss them. Okay, it, it, that's It's a good. very different mindset to say, wait, these adjacent users, they could be our next customers. What can we learn from them? So to paraphrase that, I want to make sure the audience picks out nuggets they can use. The question you should be asking yourself is, of the people that know us and wanted to learn more about us, why didn't they sign up to us? Right. Or how come they're not using it? If they signed up, why are they not using it? Why didn't they renew it? That's the kind of question you've got to ask yourself. Right. I also like to say, who are your cranky customers? Who are the people who complain? When we usually dismiss them again to say, yes. well, you know, they really don't know how to use a product well, or they're not the sweet spot, so we're not going to serve them. They may actually represent your future market. And so I love these ideas of customer advisory boards. They're fantastic, but we tend to fill them with our best customers. Yes, you the know customers you. we like, actually. Yeah, they like us. We go go to like Napa Valley or something. We go have dinner together. We celebrate. Well, it's a love fest. What you should do is fill your customer advisory board with people who you think are pretty smart, pretty good, decent people, but for whatever reason, you're not meeting their needs. Mm -hmm. They need to be able to talk truth to power and tell you, like, this is how you could really win my, more of my business. If you would just do this. And then you can look at all these opportunities and say, well, which of these really are the ones we want to go after? Because clearly, if we could serve them well, we would, but we are not. So where are we going to invest? And this is the hard part. When you're putting something on the table to say, we're going to do something new, something else has to come off. The companies who go through digital transformations, for example, are the ones who really succeed, are the ones who prioritize, these are the new things we're going to do. And these are the old things we're not going to do anymore. You have to have that discipline to take things off the table. So this is an important point, right? I mean, I've worked in many transformations as a strategy partner, helping companies change their business models, change the markets they're serving and so on. But too many of them want to add to what they are doing and they kind of divide the organization in two, divide their resources in two. And the result is, you know, it's dividing results by two. So. In working with so many tech executives, financial services executives, and so on, how does a, an executive manage the organization in building a culture of knowing, okay, we're going up to something new, it's a future customer. How do you convince an organization to take things off the table when most organizations think doing more is better? Well, I think it's facing reality here. I, I think the best disruptors are what I call realist optimists. They're optimistic about what the future can do, but they're also very realistic and pragmatic about what it's going to take to get there. And you cannot just put more and more on people's place. That's where change fatigue comes from. 
And we're not creating the space to say, you know, we want to do new things, but in order to do that, we have to take the old things off. Your day doesn't just magically expand. Yes. The dollars just don't magically come out of nowhere. One of the biggest excuses I hear from people is you don't have the people, we don't have the money. I'm like, you have the people and the money, you're just not deciding to spend it on this. Yes. You know, I always, whenever I meet executives and they always ask me, you know, how are they doing with the strategy implementation? I always say, let me look at your calendar and let me see how much time you're spending on this. And if it's not the majority of your time, then you obviously have not prioritized any implementation of what you're trying to do. It's similar to what you're saying. You've got to take things off to create time to do things, right? And if you don't do it, then you get the same results. But let's step back. Let's just uh, change gears a little bit here, right? Is this a cultural thing? Are there certain countries that are better at doing this? Are there certain ways of thinking that are better at doing this? Or is this something you've seen that is successful universally if the principles are adopted? This is universally uh, available to any company, any culture. What's more interesting, I think, are the individuals who lead them. My research, actually, I surveyed a thousand leaders in five different countries, US, UK, Germany, Brazil, and, and China. And it was interesting to see on a scale of one to 10, where people put themselves as being disruptive, 10 being very disruptive, one being you like the status quo. In the US it was about 5.6, UK a little bit higher, 5.8. At the higher end was Brazil and China, 7.6, 7.7, 7.8. And I kept going, like, what's in the water in Brazil? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they just saw themselves as disruptive. And the more I dug into it, it is dominated by very large businesses and lots of family-owned businesses. And the way that you get things done there is actually to go around the structures. People are just used to yes. doing things off the books, they so to speak. can-do attitude. Right. And so that there's attitude and belief that you have to do it this way. And this is the key thing about culture. Culture is simply made up of our beliefs and our behaviors. You want to change your culture, you change your beliefs and your behaviors. And you can start at either end. And what I found amongst the disruptive organizations, there were three common beliefs. One is a belief in openness, that sharing more information, uh, making sure that people knew what was going on would lead to greater trust and accountability. Uh, the second belief is agency, that every employee has the opportunity to act like an owner because they have open information. Mm -hmm. They know what the strategy is and how they can participate in it. And third, that there's a bias for action because your customers are moving further and further away from you. So one of the things I, I ask organizations when I go in and start an engagement with them, I ask for permission. This is in the days before COVID. I would walk in an hour in advance and just wander around and talk to random employees yes. and ask them, tell me who your future customer is. Tell me what your strategy as an organization is to meet their needs. And third, very importantly, show me your personal dashboard. Show me how you know that you are contributing to that strategy, to the success of your organization. And that tells you a lot. Every single person in your organization should be able to answer those three questions. And they don't. So you could have the most beautiful strategy but if it's not lived by every single person in the company, it's not going to be successful. I think for the sake of the audience, repeat those three questions again. I think it's maybe like the, it, it boils down the essence of what people can do on Monday morning, 8 a.m. So for the benefit of the audience, do you mind repeating them? Sure thing. The first question is, who is your future customer? The second question is, what is their strategy to meet the needs of that future customer? And the third question is, how are you personally 
going to contribute to the success of that strategy? Because I think that, you know, it's, it's very easy to get caught up into being confused and overwhelmed with discussions about strategy. But I think if the audience wants to do something, a great thing to do on Monday morning is get your team together and maybe start off a discussion by talking about these three questions. And that will lead to other further conversations about how you need to think about, you know, whether you're going to be disruptive, how to be disruptive, how you're going to grow and so on. Now, the interesting thing you said, Charlene, is when you, when you look at these questions and the examples you gave, I was speaking to Gary Hamill and Ram Charan recently, and they were giving me examples of very successful emerging markets companies that are doing amazing things and growing rapidly and coming up with new products and serving future customers. But when I apply this framework and lens you've been talking to me about, I can see it working in those companies because that's exactly what they are doing. They're identifying future customers and they're creating a sense of ownership for employees to go out and build products and services that satisfy their needs. So the lens you're applying is very universal. I can see it applying in different cultures. It's not as if it's just a Silicon Valley lens, right? No, and, and what's interesting is you can do this through any type of organization. The hierarchy, the structures, they don't have to be flat. They don't have to be agile. All those things are flavors and variations on the same theme. If you don't know who your future customer is, you, you cannot begin your march towards the future because like, you're just assuming that you're going to find them along the way. That's not yes. a recipe for success. We've been using a lot of tech company examples and commercial companies, but I can imagine it's even more relevant in something like the Defense Department where you're building a jet fighter that takes 20 years to develop. Right? You need to know who your customer is going to be in 20 years. Well, I, I look at the oil companies, right? Yes. They do develop uh, 20, 30 years in advance. Exactly. They're going into communities where there might be, and they're they're really getting to know the communities because they, you know, it's going to take us decades. And we're going to begin the conversation now because we need to build those relationships now. But they're looking literally 20, 30 years down the line before they develop a new property. This is where we oftentimes get so blinded by our current customers. Yes. This is the foundation of what Clay Christensen said. This is the innovator's dilemma. And he fundamentally believed that large organizations could not get out of the way. But he didn't anticipate this belief of openness and the power of openness and the power of technologies to ensure that we could actually see and understand who our future customer is and be able to have that intelligence spread almost instantaneously throughout the rest of the organization. That's the biggest change right now, is that you as a leader can align your entire organization around actual real customers so that when people have this model, they understand who their future customer is and somebody comes across one, they can send up the flag and go, everybody gather around, gather around. We have one here. Let's observe them. Let's look at them. Let's get to know them, really deeply know them. And we can all watch and learn. I suppose the scary flip side of this is, as you say, it's much easier to do this today. So if you as an executive is not acting on this, your competitors are almost certainly doing it. Right. I mean, it's not even your own competitors. You have all the startups. You have your own employees. Your own employees who see the opportunity that you don't. The push and push, and at some point, if you're just not seeing the opportunity, they see like, I'm jumping ship and I'm going to pursue this opportunity. In the United States, business formation is up 46% over the previous year. These are real businesses that are being filed that say, I'm going to employ people. These aren't just independent contractors. 
it usually grows at 7% yes. on an annual basis. And it is up 46% in the midst of a pandemic. There are so many opportunities being created right now because our needs have fundamentally shifted over the past year and a half. And yet companies are operating as if, oh, we just shifted a little bit. We just went remote. We're going to go back to work. It's, it's completely different now. We are on the cusp of so much growth and change. And we are ill-equipped as leaders to be able to see that even, to see those opportunities right in front of us. You spoke about the fact that it's about giving the young people a voice. You know, I had a conversation with the former CEO of Sony. And he said that one of the things he, he noticed when he came into Sony is that it's the youngsters who had the ideas and it's the senior managers who were blocking them. And one of the easiest things he did was to promote the younger people so they could put the passion back into serving customers. And it's very similar to what you're saying. It's, it's a simple statement, but it's about bringing that diversity and passion back into your workforce. Right. I looked at these disruptive leaders and I said, okay, yeah, the young people are going to see themselves as more disruptive than the old people, right? No, there was no difference. It was the same? It was the same across the board. And it was a little bit different by um, levels and by country, uh, by company size. But for the vast majority, the only place I found a difference was by gender. Women saw themselves as less disruptive than their male counterparts, given that everything else was the same. Their, their ability to lead and see the change and everything. Um, women, especially in the United States, just rated themselves at a lower disruption level than their male counterparts, even though they had the same exact abilities. Okay, that's an important that, point. So what you're saying is that women are as disruptive, but they rate themselves lower. Yes. And, and I think part of the reasons we go back are cultural, especially here in the United States, where disruption is seen as a negative thing. And so there was that permutation of it. But I also think that uh, the ways that we express disruption, there are definitely like, you know, blow it up kind of disruptions and the yeah. people who actually are moving it forward, who actually are good at it. If you think about it, really good disruption requires a lot of the skills that are associated with women leaders, the yes. ability to have empathy, ability to draw people to you, create movements where it's not about you, but about the team and the organization. All of these things point to women being very, very successful disruptors. This goes back to developing disruptors in your organization. It's not enough for you to be a disruptor. Where are the other people? And if you have ever been an only in the room, if you've ever been the only woman, the only person of color, the only young person, the only old person, you're using all of your energy just to remain in the room. Are you gonna raise your hand and stand up and suggest something that nobody else believes in? That's really hard. So we look at diversity and inclusion and belonging as a thing that's nice to have. I think it's absolutely essential to our businesses because you have to have a very strong sense of belonging, a sense of safety for everybody to bring their most disruptive selves to the table. That's a very interesting take on it, uh, Charlene, and I like it. I want to explain this for the audience and make sure I paraphrase this correctly, okay? So what you're saying is that, and I would agree with what you're saying, if you're the only female in a room of let's say 10 males right you're doing everything just to be in that room so you don't have the energy the time to speak up but if there's three or four females in that room you feel safer to speak up and what matters is not that the team is diverse but the diverse thinking of the team has an avenue to come forward right i'm no longer speaking up and standing out as yes. the only woman i'm not having to use all of my energy to fit in 
But also, I would say, even if I'm the only of whatever in the room, my leader has done everything possible to even the playing field, to make it so that I feel safe. Because we say we don't want to give people any extra consideration. I I never wanted to be given any extra boost just because I was a woman or anything. But I do expect that my leaders create a safe and even playing field for me. And the vast majority of the time, it is not. The vast majority of the time, all you have to do is just look at your numbers, look at how you promote women, how you look at people of color, and especially the intersection of women and people of color. And and the numbers at the very first levels of management show that women of color get promoted at a third of the rate of their male counterparts, white women, and even male people of color. So I mean, just look at the numbers. And it's true in every single organization. So there's a lot of work for us to do in terms of making sure that all these voices are heard and known and respected and seen accurately. Because until we are, until we are actually known accurately, we're not going to feel confident that if I come up with an idea, if you don't even know me on a day-to-day basis, why would I put myself out there and, and suggest something that could be the absolute right thing to do, but you just don't see me. You don't see my idea either. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um... I was speaking to David Bradford. He's a professor at Stanford. You may know him. But anyway, the discussion we had is similar to your point on diversity. And what we were saying is that it's a competitive imperative for companies to be diverse, not because it's the right thing to do, but because it makes companies better at serving customers. And unfortunately, the business case for diversity is always about the right thing to do versus it. you have to do it to survive. It makes you a better company. Right. Well, actually, there's a great article in Harvard Business Review from last year that showed it's actually not even the diversity numbers that make a difference. It's do you put in place all of these practices and these beliefs that actually make it safe for any employee, everybody to fully participate, not check anything at the door? Do you have openness? Do you invest in that? Do you actually invest in people's agencies? Do you actually make it so that people can take action and not be penalized if things don't work out? So these are all things that allow diversity to happen, but more importantly, allow all of these disruptive activities to actually happen, good business to happen. Yes. So this is not about diversity leading to good business. It's good business results in diversity because it's the absolutely best thing you could do. I mean, all you have to do is if you're hiring people, most organizations are hiring people at pretty good numbers in the front lines, but they drop out as they move up the ladder. What if you could actually fix that? There's nothing that says somebody who is a woman or a person of color is going to be a worse leader, and yet they don't get promoted at the same level as their white male counterparts. Another way of thinking of it is why would you let someone leave that you spent all these years training? You spent years training them, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and yet you're letting them walk out and go to a competitor or start some business that's going to take you out of business. Right. And the number one reason I hear from from executives is I don't want to single people out for special treatment. And I go, it's this is not about special treatment. This is just about being fair and having equity. It's interesting that in every single discussion I have with everyone, no matter what we're talking about, whether it's operations, whether it's strategy, whether it's about disruption, always comes back to how do you manage your employees to deliver on all these great ideas you have? You know, I'll give a simple example. Jeff Weiner, who is the CEO, now chairman of LinkedIn, had this habit of 
beginning every meeting by saying, hi, I'm Jeff and I'm the CEO of LinkedIn. And our purpose is to connect the world's professionals. And one of the ways we do that is to make members first. So if he would pick something, their values or their strategy to talk about, mention that. He did this in every single meeting. And then an employee said to him once, you know, Jeff, we're getting sick of it. When are you going to stop doing this? And he said, very wisely, I will stop doing it when people stop looking surprised. We think people understand what our strategy is. We yes. think people understand what they're supposed to do. They don't remember. You get so distracted, focused on the thing. And why are we here again? Oh, yeah, this is why. I was doing a day-long offsite with somebody, and, and the CMO came in at the end of the day to talk to the marketing team. And I said, so what are you trying to accomplish for this year? What are your top goals and strategic goals? She goes, oh, love to tell you, but I'm going to have the team tell you because we just spent last month, a whole week, on an offsite working this out. Team, tell them. They couldn't tell. They were all like frantically digging through their laptops with the PowerPoint and they couldn't remember it. It, it was incredibly eye-opening and the CMO was just horrified. <laughs> it was not clear. I'm not actually at all surprised about this because whenever I talk to executives and they always ask me, you know, Michael, what's going to be the biggest challenge about any strategy we develop? And I always tell them the biggest challenge is you're going to forget it because over time, over many uh, you know, different agenda items that come across your table, slowly but surely you're going to drift away from what you originally wanted to do and you're going to be pursuing some Frankenstein version of it. And this example that you gave shows that people need to be reminded in every interaction what is the most important thing they need to be doing. And unfortunately, most executives forget about that. They think teaching strategy or keeping the organization focused can be devolved to an offsite once a year or once a quarter, right? It has to be lived every single day. Unfortunately, most strategies that companies have are so convoluted yes. and complex. How could you remember this every day? How could you actually execute on a strategy that's so difficult? Uh, Roger Martin has a beautiful way of talking about strategy as storytelling. And I so love this because if you can tell the story of the journey that our customer is on and how where they are and where we are and how we're going to meet up and what that journey is going to look like, you can actually tell a story that people will remember. There are ups and downs and obstacles who are going to come along the way, but we will remember the key elements of that story. And more importantly, if it's a narrative, we will put ourselves, we will build our stories on top of that narrative. So we can talk all we want about strategy, but if I can't sit here and tell you about it without a PowerPoint slide, it's not gonna be successful. Yes, because a story is emotional. At the end of the day, you're dealing with people and you want to tie them emotionally to the journey. Otherwise, they would never partake in the journey, right? They, why, why would they just listen and give their lives for a PowerPoint slide? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's why I think disruptions need to be movements. Leaders need to create a movement because this is incredibly difficult to do. And to actually lay out, this is where we're going. This is the future. Martin Luther King, I have a dream. Right. We yes. don't remember all the elements of what he said, but we remember the feeling when we heard those words of what that dream represents. And we can tell our own stories around that. What is our manifesto? Writing a manifesto is incredibly powerful because it says this is what's wrong with the world. Yes. And we believe it could be better. And here is the action we're going to take to make it so. Will you come on the journey with me? And I think the mistake a lot of leaders make in my experience is that they forget that it's only a movement if it keeps going, if they're not driving it anymore. That's right. I love that book, New Power. And they go, you know, it's, it's only a movement if it moves without you. 
So what's the name of the book? New Power? The New Power. came about two years ago. And one of a book about how to think about power. And it's not the power that you accumulate into yourself, but the power that you spread into networks and connections and relationships is where the real power is actually today. Yes, it, so there must be no head office. That's the perfect example of a movement. It runs itself. If you look at Black Lives Matter, for example, who's the leader of that? There is no leader of it. It's a movement with chapters, self-organizing chapters. Right. And it's one of the most powerful things. You look at all the, some of the most powerful movements that are out there today. There's no clear leader, but they're united in terms of what they actually want to have. Now, I do think that there, you know, there are also movements with leaders that are very powerful too as well. I'm not saying that only headless sure. movers are there, but we, I think we put too much emphasis on a leader at the front of the movement, right? And it puts too much pressure on that leader. Leaders often say, I can't lead this disruption. I can't lead it because I'm not an expert on technology. I don't have all the answers. We're talking about the future and we can't go until we know all the answers. And they get paralyzed into the space of wanting to do more analysis until they have the answers. And my response to them is, no one's expecting you to have the answers. We're asking you to have the right questions that are going to guide us on our work. What are the questions we have to answer? Where should we be curious? How should we be directing our focus? And you can do that with the questions. It's a very different mindset. And we think of leaders or being a leader as having all the answers and you can't. The future is unknowable. Yes, it's almost like you're managing an orchestra and you've got to bring in the specialists and create a movement, right? But you can't be the one that knows everything. And I think the final point I want to make, because it's an important one, we've been talking about technology a lot, but technology is only a tool. It's not as if you can only disrupt with technology. It's a tool that's going to help you grow. But in a lot of companies, they just view rolling out technology as the be all and the end all of being a futuristic company. And it's not enough. I can point to so many companies who have outdated technologies and they're doing great. You don't need to have the latest, greatest technology. It certainly helps. But I can point to even more companies who have invested in a huge platform, but haven't invested in the transformation part of digital transformation. They've got all the digital part. They've got all the data moving, but they don't have the people who know how to actually use that because they haven't spent the time and done the heavy lifting to actually change the core of the business, the people part, the process. And it is such a shame because these people are saying like, hey, we want to do things differently, but you won't give me permission to change our organizational structure, to change our incentives, to change our focus and take things off the table, to do things in a new way. Even with all this technology, it's not going to make any difference whatsoever because you won't change. Yes, you know, technology is a tool and it's a tool in the hands of people who know how they're using it. And that's the part you talk about, the digital transformation, right? Yeah, I'm a, again, I've been a technology analyst for over 20 years. And I can tell you, it's never about the technology. Yes. And I love the technology as much as anybody. I love seeing it. I love playing with it. It's so innovative and amazing. But unless you change the people, the processes, um, the incentives that you have to work in a new way that is enabled by this technology, it won't make a whit of difference. 
Yes, it's, a, it's another way of saying, you know, if you look at streaming apps, you can have the best code software, data servers, compression systems. You can have all of those fancy bells and whistles, but if you haven't trained the people, you haven't incentivized them, you haven't structured the organization, you haven't changed the culture and beliefs of them to use the tools to compete, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. They're eventually going to probably lose against the company that's done everything right. Right. I mean, when Adobe went into being a SaaS-based business, the employees really were upset about this. And it was a huge change for them. You can go talk to them. They still like have huge scar tissue from the whole change, even now, almost 10 years later. And they realized this was going to be really hard. So they took the time to explain to people, bring them along, understand, listening to them, understand what those challenges are, and gently insist we are going to make this change. I know it's hard, but we have to change it. Which is really the opposite tack a lot of companies take on a big change. They try to convince the employees it'll be easy. So the employees sign up and when it gets hard, they're already in it, so they might as well just complete it. But it seems as if, and I think, you know, I've seen this with my own experience in implementation and so on, is that if you do the planning right, and even if it takes you longer, and even if it costs more, and even if there's more pushback at the beginning, if you get employees to understand what's really going to happen and you give them the tools to make that journey, most times it's going to be a much better result. Right. I mean, employees never ask for a permanent job. They know things change. Yes. But if you know the change is going to happen six months from now, what they really appreciate is honesty and fairness to say, we're going to be honest with you. We're going to be automating this job and it's going to go away. But we're going to do everything possible to find you another role in our company, or we're going to give you retraining, or we're going to give you some money to do a startup um, for a nonprofit or whatever it is, asking you in return to work your darndest until the very last day. It's that, uh, you know, you gave some of the principles of successful organizations. One of them, as you said, was transparency and openness, right? Right. And that's, again, what openness does. It says, I value the relationship. I want to make sure there's integrity in the way that we work together. There has to be trust. There has to be accountability. And so the biggest problem is when people say, yeah, we're going to go change and we're going to change as quickly as possible. We're going to go from one state to the other. And I've been doing some research around this concept of creating liminal space. Liminal literally means the word threshold. You're going from one state to the other. And for us to actually create that space, that breathing room, we do this in our lives. We do it with graduations, for example, or weddings. We have rituals around transitions and change. And we don't take that into consideration enough when we're going through these disruptions. So we push people through it as fast as we can. You should not feel disruptive. Just deal with that. Come yeah. on, roll with it. Come on. How come you're not flexible? You know, you're old or whatever. And, you know, that's not a reason to do this. I'm a big believer that change openness, all of these things require structure. And what liminal space is, there is structure to hold you, to give, literally hold space for you to go through this change. There is a master ceremony, somebody you can look to as your guide to say, take your time, walk through here, but I will guide you on the way. I'm not going to push you through. I'm going to give that space and define for you, this is a journey that we have to walk, but you're not going to walk alone. That's a very different way to approach change, I think. Charlene, I must say, you know, we've uh, spoken to some of the biggest minds and biggest, best thinkers in strategy on the show, and you are one of the most insightful I've spoken to. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the discussion. I think, you know, it started in disruption, but like everything, it cuts to the heart of what is business and how do you compete? And it always comes back to how do you not just manage employees? How do you find a way to liberate them with the right support, right? It's always about that. It always comes down to that, no matter what discussion you have about business. Yeah, it's all about relationships. You know, leadership is simply a relationship between people who aspire to create change and the people who are inspired to follow them. It has nothing to do with your title, the resources and the budget you carry. It is the relationship you form with people. And the minute we forget that, we are not going to be effective as leaders. Yes, I mean, if you look at all the great stories, and I mean, unfortunately, tech is a big part of it because of their contribution to GDP and so on. You know, people like Steve Jobs and you know Bezos and so on, they were able to galvanize, motivate, and connect with people and make them do things they would not have been able to do for another leader. Right, and that connection to the leaders, but also connection to the change, yes. to that future, is what really inspired them. It wasn't this personal loyalty to Steve Jobs. Of course, yes. It was the vision that Steve had that just galvanized people, right? This vision of what Amazon could be. And we could do this for our hospitals. We can do this for our schools, our banks, our nonprofits, our churches. We are leaders in so many realms of the world, and we could do that in every single one of those areas. The point you made here is a good point, maybe one of the most profound points, and we tend to forget this. People don't follow a leader. They follow a leader's vision. Right. And you know, we teach so much about leaders being charismatic and being decisive, but if you don't have that vision of a compelling future, serving a new customer and giving people the confidence this is worth pursuing, it's gonna matter to be part of this journey. Everything else eventually falls apart over time, right? So you don't have to be charismatic. You don't have to be the epitome of the leader at the front of the pack. I, again, I, I do believe that we're in a time and age now, we're actively defining redefining what it means to be a leader. And I think it's way overdue because yes. it allows for a very different type, one that's much more human-centered, relationship-centered. Because if we can do that and foster that kind of leadership up and down throughout the organizations and make that the imperative, we will be going to be so much better off than this traditional hierarchical command and control uh, forms of leadership. Charlene, thank you so much for being on the show. I think that's going to be one of our most popular episodes we've done. Definitely one of the most insightful. I think our audience is going to love it. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. You are a great interviewer. Thank you. <laughs> right. Enjoy your day and we'll be in touch. Okay, thank you. Take care. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.